Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to say we have Tom Wheatland on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Frankfurt School in Exile. I have a friend who, as a very young child, happened to meet Herbert Marcuse. Upon meeting Marcuse, he said, Marcuse, Marcuse, you have such a big head. Now, that's a very funny anecdote, but it turns out that Marcuse did not have a big head. He did become extraordinarily famous as a member of the Frankfurt School, but even as he did, he disavowed his own fame. This is one of the things you will learn in Tom Wheatland's terrific book about the Frankfurt School in exile, especially in the United States. I really enjoyed talking to Tom today, and I think that you will enjoy listening to us talk. Here's the interview. Hi, Tom. Hi, Marshall. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you're, you? You're well. That's good. I'm, I'm very well. It's a beautiful day here in Iowa. We're going to have thunder showers later today, but for now, uh, it's very nice. Now, you're in Worcester, is that correct? That's right, yep. And uh-huh. it's uh, very overcast and unseasonably cold and rainy for this time of year, but... Uh, uh, you know, hopefully uh, it'll be a little bit more summer-like soon. Well, it happens. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Tom Wheatland today, and we'll be discussing his terrific new book, The Frankfurt School in Exile. As I was telling Tom before the uh, interview began, this is one of my pet topics. I um, I went to school. I went to. I was an undergraduate right uh, sort of uh, after. Uh, the new left had become a thing. Um, this was in the 80s, and I, and I very much look back on that time and said, you know, I, I wish I could have been alive then. Um, now that I've read Tom's uh, book, I, I, I'm, I'm more confused about what I thought than ever. <laughs> because there's some, yeah, you point out some terrific things about the reaction of the Frankfurt School guys or the Horkheimer Circle guys about their own fame. And I didn't know any of this, and I, we'll come to it in the interview, but I thought it was absolutely a terrific part of the book, how ambivalent they were about the fact that the New York Times had made them into gurus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And much to their credit, I would say that they were, they were disturbed by this. But um, anyway, Tom, let me ask you to begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, I grew up uh, just outside of Portland, Maine, which is a, a, a gorgeous place uh, to live. Uh, and I had a very uh, – I went to a terrific high school that, uh, that, that gave me this really broad and very firm academic foundation and then went to college at Brown University in Providence. Mm-hmm. And after after the high school education that I had, Brown was the perfect place to go. So I started there in the late 80s and graduated in 91. And the culture wars, the reverberations of the culture wars were still being intensely felt on campus. And there was a really um, wonderfully engaging intellectual atmosphere on campus. The semester would begin and all anybody was talking about is, is what courses you were taking and with who, because the, the curriculum was wide open and you, you could take anything that you wanted to. So with the, with the kind of, of 
foundation that I had going in, it was really it was a place where I, I felt like I was really able to take advantage mm-hmm. of um, of what was there. And so, you know, I, I, I tended to focus on uh, on on taking courses with with particular faculty members that I'd heard fantastic things about. And uh, I, I started out majoring in psychology and actually finished that major. But I was really interested in in a lot of the personality theorists uh, and you know, then I also dabbled in political science and uh, and comparative literature and um, and and art history and and history itself and uh, took a lot of wonderful things. And it was it was at Brown at that time that I started becoming aware of different figures connected with the Frankfurt School. Um, and and it wasn't until my senior year that I really uh, focused exclusively on them. There was a, a major at Brown called Modern Culture and Media uh, that now is sort of more, um, it, it's more of a, a traditional communications and, and media production kind of major. But, but back when I was there, it was it was a very heavy uh, media theory and cultural studies uh, in its infancy uh, kind of concentration. So a lot of people that I knew who, who, who had, I just kind of dabbled in it. And that's when I first read Walter Benjamin and, and Adorno, I'd already encountered Eric Fromm before. Um, but uh, so I was, I was familiar with these people and I, I took a senior seminar with, with Abbott Gleason, who at the time was working on uh, a book on the history of the concept of totalitarianism. And he wanted to talk to all of us before we began the seminar to see what kind of foreign language strengths we had because he was interested in in having people work on intellectual histories of various figures who made significant contributions to the concept in utilizing the concept of totalitarianism. So I, I went in and I talked about some of the things that I'd been studying and that I was curious about, and he said, well, it, it this seems obvious then you really need to work on Herbert Marcuse mm-hmm. and and focus on his use of totalitarianism and uh you know I don't think it's going to be easy going uh especially in the context of a one semester seminar but I think I I think that based on what your interests are that this would be very satisfying and fulfilling and so that was uh, I mean, it was it was really kind of a baptism by fire. That was the first time that I read Martin Jay's Dialectical Imagination, uh, and then started. I, I mean, I read some of what Jameson had to say about the Frankfurt School at the time. Uh, his first his his book where he deals with Marcuse and Marxism and form, and uh, and so I you know I produced a seminar paper for that on Marcuse and and really got bitten by the bug. I mean, it was it was kind of ironic because at the moment that that the Cold War was kind of unraveling and and coming to this very dramatic uh end uh I was reading one dimensional man and and I just found it absolutely stirring because it 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 provided this very different perspective and very different way for thinking about this world that I'd grown up in mm-hmm. so there was something really enormously uh interesting and and fascinating to me about that and i and i also thought that the language that that Marcuse used was just it was really stirring to me and and it was something that i really couldn't get out of my mind i don't know how seriously i'd thought about going to graduate school 
until right around that time. But I, I loved working on this project. I loved working on him. And I kept thinking, I'm, I'm just curious about this group and I want to keep reading them. So I finished up college, uh, worked for uh, a couple of years and, and kept reading and, and kept thinking about them and couldn't really get it out of my mind. And, um, and it was several instructors from, from Brown who strongly advised me to uh, to seek out Paul Brynas at Boston College, mm-hmm. who turned out to be uh, the dissertation advisor for this project. And at the time, I had no idea. I, I just knew that I wanted to do something about the Frankfurt School. And I'll never forget the first day that I walked into Paul Brynas's office. You know, I, I was familiar with him and knew that he he was one of the people who was on the who was one of the initial. Uh, people who who really helped prom- promote the Frankfurt School and awareness of the Frankfurt School in this country. So, uh, you know, I mean, it was it was ab- it was thrilling to to meet him and talk to him about it. And and uh, not surprisingly, of course, you know, I mean, this was years after he'd he'd worked with Telos and been absolutely steeped in in this whole tradition. Uh, I came in and he said, "Well, you know, I I I know a lot about all of that, but it's not really." Uh, what I'm focused on myself all that much right now, but we can certainly do it. It'll be an interesting trip into my past, uh, but but it's not, you know, just so you know, it's it's not. It's so that was that was sort of the 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 caveat that that uh, that that he gave me. But it, he he turned out to be an enormously uh, wonderful uh, advisor because he was able to to really give me a lot of his time, a lot of his energy, and. Uh, it, the project turned into a really big, complicated project. Uh, you know, I mean, had it been simply a piece of, of European intellectual history, that that would have been hard all by itself. But uh, but then trying to 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 get up to speed as much as I could on American intellectual history at the same time, uh, it, it really I, I needed I definitely needed some guidance and some help. And I was able to find. I mean, in addition to Paul Brennan, there was also Alan Lawson that I worked really closely with. Uh, at Boston College, mm-hmm. and over the years, I've I've met numerous people that uh, that uh, you know that have been enormously influential as well. But uh, but but that that really is um, the beginning of my interest in all of this, and mm-hmm. and really the the origins of the of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I should. Uh, you are like the. Um, I was going to say you are like that. You are the poster child for a good undergraduate and graduate experience. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the people I talk to are very bitter about both. But I will say yeah. this, though, a shout-out to Brown University. I don't believe I've ever – I know I have a lot of friends that went to, you know, the schools back east, as they say. Mm-hmm. And um, uniformly, if they went to that big one in Boston, they say they had a bad time. Yeah. But uniformly, if they went to the nice one in Providence, they say they had a great time. <laughs> I, it, you know, it is, it's, it's not like I, I'm, I'm, I'm put, you know, doing an advertisement for Brown, but it, it's really true. I don't know anybody. I, I bump into people in the Boston area all the time who turned out to have gone to Brown, and, and I can't think of anybody who ever tells me, you know, I really hated it there. Yeah. They all are still starry-eyed about it. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Well, that's terrific. That's the way the undergraduate experience should be. I went to a college here in Iowa, Grinnell College, and I had a great experience too. And mm-hmm. and I always, I, n- I never fail to to mention that I'm very grateful to them. But yeah, that, it's it's yeah. terrific having that engaging environment in Brown. I don't know how Brown does it exactly. I know Abbott Gleason; he's a terrific guy, and I love that particular book, yeah. uh, the, the one on the origins of the idea and history of the idea of totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. So you really couldn't uh, do better than 
than him, I think. So let's uh, talk about the book itself. Um, sure. I, I, I know a little bit about the topic. I probably know too much to be doing this interview, but, but let me ask some um, orientational questions. First of all, you call these people uh, the, the Horkheimer Circle and not mm-hmm. so much the Frankfurt School. Why do you do that? Well, I, I think part of when I, uh, you know, coming out of that atmosphere at Brown, I, I had um, a, a kind of almost um, caricature, almost a sort of mythic vision of them in my own mind uh, that they were this very tight knit coterie, as the term Frankfurt School tends to imply, and um, and and then the the. You know, I, I I had also assumed that that they came. I, I a lot of the um, a, a lot of their story that that they themselves told and helped to promote about being uh, you know this very isolated coterie uh, that 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 came here and was very influentially affected by what they saw and experienced here. Uh, but 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 still, I mean, if anything, that that uh, their isolation helped enhance and kind of increase this kind of critical distance that they wanted to keep as observers, as critics, as theorists, as uh, as intellectuals. And uh, and it wasn't until the new left came along that that these messages and bottles that they sort of thought of as as what their work really was. It, they they had virtually no audience. Uh, in their lifetime, that those that those messages and bottles were ultimately discovered on the beaches by uh, mm-hmm. by young students in in the late 1960s. Um, so I, I think I use the term Horkheimer Circle because the the actual um, the the picture that emerged of of this group through all the archival work that I did was a lot more complex than that. I mean, for for starters. The, the coherence of the group is a lot more complicated and problematic, both intellectually and institutionally. But then the other thing that I'm interested in doing is, is looking at them uh, in connection with, with other intellectual circles of emigres and, and looking at all of those emigres navigating uh, exile together. So rather than being isolated, I, I, I mean, I think that the Frankfurt School was, was able to to sort of enjoy a brief period of, of kind of splendid isolation for a while uh, because they had a financial cushion to do that. But as soon as is is that got destroyed in the recession of of the late 1930s, uh, that was th- th- that kind of splendid isolation was no longer an option. And and even before that, they weren't terribly isolated. I mean, they collaborated with a lot of people here in this country. Mm-hmm. So the idea that that nobody knew about them, that that nobody had heard about them. Uh, that's that's another thing that that I'm uh, attempting to question and problematize. So I felt it uh, to me it seemed important to to um, to move away from the the traditional label and category that we use and maybe introduce something a little bit different um, that uh, to, to to kind of indicate the 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 fact that it's it's really a a different uh, picture that that emerges from from the the vantage point that I'm looking at at, at this group uh, from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell us about Horkheimer. Max Horkheimer was a brilliant guy. Uh, he was, uh, and he was also a very savvy diplomat. I, I think that he had a tremendous amount of charisma, 
And I think that, uh, I mean, no matter what he had to do to guide this institution through all of the hazards uh, and perils of exile, the, he still maintained uh, the, the really intense loyalty of an incredibly bright and independently minded group of, of people. And to keep all of that together and to, to, make, to make all of them feel as though they were uh, they all shared in this enormously uh, important project, uh, both for themselves, but also really for, for German intellectual life and Western intellectual life. Uh, that, I think that that took an enormous amount of charisma, but also an enormous amount of diplomacy. I, I, you know, I mean, he, he obviously, there, there were times when he misread situations. There were times where he, he, he obviously antagonized people, sometimes knowing that he was going to do that, sometimes not knowing that he was going to do that. Um, but, uh, but I think he's a, he's a fascinating person. And they're actually, uh, uh, John Abramite, who, uh, teaches at, uh, the, um, at, uh, um, Buffalo State, mm -hmm. he is, uh, he's working on a biography of, of Horkheimer that is, Absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's uh, to, to to my knowledge, it's the most thorough treatment of uh, of Horkheimer's career that uh, that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's really amazing. Maybe you could tell us about Horkheimer's background and um, the background of the other members yeah. of the school in a kind of, to use a fancy historical word, a prosopographical way. Do they share things in common? How did the yeah. institute get started? Why, yeah. the, why the affiliation I I in Frankfurt and uh, that, that sort of thing? Well, uh, I'd say that the, the key event that all of them shared in their lives is that they were all young men roughly in their 20s when, uh, when the First World War came to an end and the revolutions of 1918 and 1919 took place. So, I mean, that's an enormously uh, pivotal moment in, in a person's life. All of them came from generally upper-middle-class families. Uh, some of them were the sons of industrialists and factory owners and entrepreneurs. Some of them were the, the, the children of, of, of urban professionals. Uh, but all of them were totally transformed by what happened in 1918 and 1919. All of them had uh, a very um, emotional reaction to the Wilhelmine uh, society that they'd grown up in. So all of them had various moral qualms and problems with it, the conformity of it, some of the injustices of it, and then when you throw the experiences of the First World War on top of all of that, um, you know, this idea of, 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 of barbarism uh, lying mm -hmm. not so far beneath the surface. So mm -hmm. when, those, when those revolutions swept across Germany, I, I think that all, all of them were really terribly surprised and, um, and terribly excited uh, to, to witness what was happening. I mean, it really seemed like anything might be possible. And I think that the council movements for an awful lot of them, uh, were this incredibly liberating and exciting, uh, development. And then to see all of that get washed away by the counter revolutions that swept up, uh, in the wake of, of all of that, 
um, I think was was very disillusioning, frightening. Um, you know, Horkheimer and Pollock were in Munich, so they saw the repression of all of that up close. And uh, and Marcuse was was in Berlin, mm-hmm. and so he saw uh, he was there for the Spartacist winter, and it's something that he talked a lot about for the rest of his life. It was something that that um, that was the image of revolution that that he imagined in his mind. So the idea that the world could 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 be changed in very progressive ways was something that was never far from from their minds. But then thinking about how uh, all of that was snuffed out, that really became then the the life work of all of them. Uh, So they all were dedicated to formulating a comprehensive theory of of bourgeois society and, uh, and, and to really move beyond the, the the classically orthodox Marxist and even to some extent some of the Western Marxist assumptions uh, about the role of the working class and the, the evolving consciousness of the working class. They wanted to ultimately uh, to, to ultimately marry social philosophy and empirical social science together to to uh, to weld those two uh, forces together to to comprehend what was going on, to develop a comprehensive uh, social theory of contemporary society, the society that they were watching. Mm-hmm. So one of the very first things that they did was to study the German working class mm-hmm. and to figure out what was really going on with them. And the results of that were unbelievably discouraging to them, but not not terribly surprising based on on some of the events that they'd seen. So, uh, as far as why Frankfurt was selected, uh, you know, there were uh, one of their uh, the, the, really the, the prime founder and, and mover uh, who who created the Frankfurt School, uh, Felix Weil. He uh, he had been a, a student and had also similarly witnessed all of that this and. And uh, the University of Frankfurt was, uh, you know, one of the more progressive, newer universities in Germany uh, that that also had a very rapidly growing social science faculty. And they wanted to create an institute like this that would dedicate itself to making sense of of what was going on from from sort of this left perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it? Was, I'm sorry, I have to ask this. Was uh... Is this Weil related to Herman Weil? Yeah, Herman Weil was his father. Oh, really? Herman Weil okay. was a was a was a was a grain merchant uh, in the in the uh, import export business. Yeah, because the reason I mentioned it is because uh, the uh, my wife's a mathematician, so she okay. knows Herman Weil is. So uh, then I have to ask this though because it is curious. Uh, they're almost to a person Jewish. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that? Uh, I think. Um, well, I. I, I I, I think that well, all of them had uh, they had a relationship to Judaism that um, you know is is sort of classically German in some respects. Uh, you know, I mean, George Masse is is the the author who pops foremost into my mind mm-hmm. uh, about all of this. Uh, you know, there's a long tradition of uh, of Bildung in Germany and and Masse. Uh, wrote this very short but very smart little book called German Jews Beyond Judaism, in which he he really argues that that to some extent it's it's the, the legacy of the Enlightenment. It has this uh, this very powerful 
uh, impact on, on Germany's Jews, this desire for a, a pluralist, cosmopolitan society, uh, uh, a republic of letters, uh, you know, that would transcend aristocracy, that would transcend uh, religious uh, divisions. Uh, so, you know, I mean, if you, if you accept that theory, then, then that's, that, that may be part of why uh, there was such an enormous number of, of very highly assimilated German Jews that, that constituted the core of this institute. But there were also a lot of non-Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not a lot, but, but uh, you know, I mean, Karl Wittvogel probably uh, most notably uh, comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Some of them, you know, but the thing that's complicated about it is that some of them uh, enacted forms of, I, you know, I don't want to get too Freudian about it, but, but almost edible acts of rebellion. I mean, Eric Fromm uh, and... and, and um, uh, and and Leo Lowenthal, they they both uh, you know spent time with the Lehrhaus in in Frankfurt, uh, which was a, 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 a kind of orthodox uh, community. Uh, and it and it, I mean, but both of them talked about the fact that it just it it made their their parents crazy. Uh, and in fact, <laughs> Adorno, who knew Lowenthal at the time, Adorno's father said, "Oh, stay away from that guy." You know, I, this, this is. I, I don't. I, I don't know what I really think about some of this. Um, so it's you know the relationship to Judaism is enormously interesting, but it's also very very complicated. Yeah, I, I find it very interesting. I, I there is something there. there. No, for sure. There is no question. There's something there. I was talking to somebody else. I interviewed Joel Lewis about this, and he studied Jewish uh, immigrants to the United States from 1890 to the, the 19 the 1930s, particularly socialists. And and one of the things that he pointed out was that. At that time, people who were um, uh, in the in the in the in the in the believing Jewish community, let's mm-hmm. let's call it that, were, were afraid that Judaism was going to die. Yeah. Because nobody was going to synagogue. Nobody, mm-hmm. no, everybody was totally deracinated. Mm-hmm. They were all assimilating like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were like, the, the the jig is up. The game is over. This is yeah. you know, Judaism as we knew it is 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 going to is is going to vanish from the face of the earth. And I, mm-hmm. it's it's interesting from an American's perspective now because we can't imagine that because Judaism yeah. is so thriving in the United States. Yeah. Um, and not to mention the existence of Israel. But it, right. it, it's just interesting to think about that that moment in history between roughly I don't know the the late 19th early 20th century where people were thinking. You know, especially Europeans and especially these assimilated uh, Jews, I, whether the project was even going to continue as as it had. And yeah. clearly, it was breaking in two ways at the time. I mean, in yeah. one sense, people were heading to Palestine right. to do it the old way, yeah. and then other people, you know, thought those people were nuts, yeah. and, and and were uh, you know, they basically were you know, they 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 didn't believe anymore. They just didn't yeah. believe anymore, and so they were looking for other things. I, I think that it's it's a really fascinating. Sociological phenomenon. It sure is, and yeah. you know, I, certainly, I think with this group, uh, it was you know, as soon as you're being persecuted for being Jewish, that's part of the reason why you're in exile in the first place. And then you start hearing about, uh, you know, some of some of what the Nazis are doing to friends and relatives back home. Uh, it, 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 you know, to what degree you thought of yourself as Jewish in the past, you're thinking they they they, they very rapidly began to think of themselves as, as oh, yeah. Jewish. Yeah, uh, and and so I think, you know, to some degree, they do have a kind of, some of them, uh, you know, and again, this is where the the uniformity of the group is, is, is somewhat problematic, but, but some of them to varying degrees have something comparable to what some of the New York intellectuals went through, which is, you know, once the Second World War happens, once 
some of the revelations of the Holocaust become clearer and clearer, um, there there is kind of, for many of them, this return and kind of an engagement with what does it mean to be Jewish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Whether whether or not you ever felt like it had an impact on your life in the past, it does now. And, uh, you know, I mean, Trilling very famously said, uh, you know, they, they did one of these uh, symposiums where they collected people responding to the question, you know, what, what has Judaism, what, what is being Jewish meant to you as, uh, as an intellectual? And Trilling said, you know, I mean, really nothing. I, I'm sure that it's affected me in some way, but I, I'm not, it's not something I'm self-consciously aware of. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, obviously once, once the war happened, uh, that, that, was, that was a position that, that, uh, that, that increasingly became more and more untenable for yeah. people. And, you know, I mean, in part, that's, I think that's part of the reason why, why anti-Semitism became a huge sociological focus for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it was something that, that, that personally was very relevant to them yeah. uh, on, on a whole number of, of scores. But, but, but uh, you know, I mean, certainly how it intersected with their own biographies is... That, that, that can't be ignored. Yeah, well, let's uh, actually follow up on that. It's a nice segue to the next moment, and that is they're coming to the United States. They, they actually fled the Nazis, did they not? Yeah, they did. They, they, well, they, they made a brief uh, uh, interim uh, stop in Geneva. They, they sort of foresaw problems coming, and Horkheimer, I mean, this is one of these uh you know decisions where he he really seems to uh, seems to have been an unbelievably astute administrator he started moving uh all of their finances out of out of germany and trying to move as many of their resources into switzerland and uh, where he felt that they'd be safe and once he got it all moved into switzerland you know the nazis very rapidly uh, they came to power and this was one of the first institutions that they wanted to shut down so uh so they were very very fortunate in that regard and then but uh, i don't think that any of them thought that that switzerland was going to be a satisfactory long term place of refuge so uh they they were immediately already looking beyond and and thinking where else to go and and very rapidly the united states started seeming like um uh, the, the the safest option that they well, could uh, envision. I have to ask, why not? Um, why not? Given given the uh, g- given German Anglophilia, uh, yeah. I, I don't know if the Germans are Anglophiles anymore, but they used to be. Why not England? It's a good question, and I have to say, uh, I think they did. You know, I mean, they did wind up having a branch office in England, uh, but I think that they feared that uh, the kinds of opportunities and uh, the kind, the 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 kind of already uh, entrenched academic culture that they would have a tougher time uh, making inroads there than they would here if if they wanted. Uh, the kind of institutional affiliation to, to basically continue doing uh, what they were doing in Frankfurt uh, to, to, to basically replicate that as, as closely as they could. I think that they thought that, mm-hmm. that being someplace here, they would have the best opportunity to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, you know, they had people going all over the place uh, exploring different possibilities, but the, 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 the the quickest most positive responses that they got are here in this country. Mm-hmm. And well, uh, 
Why yeah. did they end? Up, why did they end up in New York and not Iowa City? Let's say. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, they, Chicago. They they could have very easily wound up in Chicago, but uh, the the kind of arrangement that Columbia offered to them, I think, uh, you know, in part they wanted to be in New York because it was a little bit closer to Europe, and it was a place that that you know from from Europe they they knew a lot about. I mean, mm-hmm. it still was kind of this iconic it was this iconic American city for them, uh, but also the kind of arrangement that Columbia was offering offering they thought would afford them uh, the the kind of situation that that they were seeking out. What's more mysterious, uh, their motivations to me have always been somewhat clear. Columbia's motivations were always kind of the the more mysterious piece of the puzzle. I mean, what what would Columbia, which the president of Columbia at the time was Nicholas Murray Butler, uh, what did they see in the Frankfurt School? That is what what to me was a more surprising and uh, and in some ways complicated thing to, to, to uncover. But a lot of that had to do with, um, with uh, all the way back before the Depression, uh, sociologists at Columbia had in mind creating uh, a kind of institution like eventually Paul Lazarsfeld built with the Bureau of Applied Social Research. So um, and initially, I mean, as bizarre as it sounds, the Frankfurt School was initially seen as an organization that might be able to serve the kind of function that Paul Lazarsfeld later did. Now, in the case of Lazarsfeld, Columbia got more than it ever bargained for. So, I mean, they they, they got a very powerful and shrewd uh, researcher that created an institution that really wound up developing a kind of gravitational pull of its own mm-hmm. and an institutional life of its own. In the case of the Frankfurt School, I think they got less than what they bargained for. I mean, I think that that they looked at the kinds of really big uh, sociological research projects that Eric Fromm had been directing uh, and then ultimately contracting out with different research teams all over Europe, and they thought, well, you know, this is fantastic. Um, and some of that continued uh, until Frome and and the institute parted ways, uh, and then uh, the rest of the institute got exposed for a lot of what it was, which was um, a, a group of people that were interested in, in, as I mentioned before, welding empiricism and social philosophy together. But the, the, the main uh, person who was instrumental in in that welding process and bridging the empirical with the social philosophical, uh, he was gone. Mm-hmm. So trying to replace that, uh, they, they didn't have a lot of time to do that, and they wound up frustrating a lot of their main allies and sponsors at Columbia in the meantime. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, Paul Lazarsfeld, I think, was brought in uh, in an attempt to, to finally deliver what Columbia had been had been looking for, and they got it in spades, like I said. Um, but but it made the institute's presence at Columbia um, no longer desired or, or even necessary. So they really hung on uh, through through the, the 1940s. And were it not for for them being able to secure uh, grant support for for this massive project of anti-Semitism uh, that ultimately resulted in, in, in five monographs, a whole series uh, called The Studies in Prejudice. Uh, that is really the, the work that cemented their place in American sociology. So uh, that was an enormously important development, but to some extent their success came a little bit too late. L- Lazarsfeld, right out of the gate, 
with landing big projects like this. The most famous early project that he was working on was this massive study of radio mm-hmm. uh, that was really, I mean, like the studies in prejudice, was very pioneering work. But you know, he was he he was a, he had a lot to show for that by the early 1940s, and the Frankfurt School. Uh, Studies and Prejudice didn't come out until 1950. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, in some ways, that that delay that 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 occurred uh, with the departure of Eric Fromm really was a huge, huge setback for them institutionally, as far as Columbia was concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is something that is forgotten. We talked a little bit in the pre-interview about the current image of the Frankfurt School or the Horkheimer Circle, mm-hmm. and it is strongly associated with what we might call critical theory, and they, they even called critical theory, but. I was surprised to read in your book, because I really didn't know, that these people were really uh, empirical social scientists at the beginning, uh, and, and, and that we shouldn't forget that. They were handing out surveys yeah. and uh, you know, conducting a really uh, sort of, I, I would call it almost positivist, yeah. uh, uh, sort of social science. Um, go ahead. And, well, and it's and it's interesting because in Germany that uh, I mean it's been overshadowed. But you talk to anybody who uh, you know is studying sociology in Germany, uh, you know, in the the 60s uh, or, or, or earlier for that matter, and they, they they went back to Germany as ambassadors of American research methods mm-hmm. empiricism. So. I mean, on the one hand, it's it's kind of bizarre because they they went back as as um, as, uh, as as ambassadors for for American social science, and yet on the other hand, they never entire their problem with with American social science was if it never has the capacity to interrogate the status quo, then it's not of very much use. You, that's where social theory comes into the picture. Uh, so you know, ultimately. Uh, they became, at the same time that they were teaching uh, American empirical research methods to their students in Frankfurt during the 1950s and 1960s, at the same time, they have these unbelievably explosive debates. Most famous is, is Adorno and Karl Popper debating positivism. And uh, so they became some of the most articulate critics at the same time of of uh, of empiricism and of positivism and social science, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it's it it is kind of this uh, this interesting uh, dynamic, and and I would say that's why not everybody in Germany is is aware of the fact you know tends to think of critical theory just as you explained it, but but there are some older sociologists are definitely aware of of of, uh, of this very vital role that they played in in basically rebuilding sociology in Germany after the war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why did um, uh, now many of our listeners are going to have heard, especially if they're a little bit older, like mm-hmm. I am, of uh, Eric Fromm. Well, why did he uh, leave? Did, there were uh, there were a whole host of disputes. Some of them were intellectual, and those were very serious differences. Uh, From uh, was a Freudian revisionist, and and some of that revisionism was necessary and useful to Horkheimer and some of the other leading theoreticians in the institute, uh, because to make Freudian psychoanalysis useful. For sociological research, that that did mean making some some theoretical revisions. But 
uh, from continued to to make revisions and and I think that some of the other members of the institute uh, got into some serious disputes with him about not wanting to to modify some of the instinct and drive theories that that they thought Freud was absolutely correct about so so that that was a very serious intellectual debate that wasn't going to easily be resolved in addition to that though uh, in exile Horkheimer did he did uh, seek to have people around him who he felt were totally committed to the Institute and were totally loyal to the Institute. And I think the thing that bothered him about Eric Fromm is that Eric Fromm was committed to the Institute, but he also had a private practice. He was very connected to psychoanalysts all over the United States. He had important contacts in Chicago, and he wasn't shy about making lots of contacts on Morningside Heights uh, and elsewhere in New York City. So uh, that was another uh, area of of friction. And then the the you know I mean ultimately when the institute started thinking about having to scale back and cut back its operating expenses, Frum seemed like uh, a, a very obvious candidate for doing something like that. Not because what he was contributing to the institute was not valued, but because he had uh, capacity to earn money as a as a private analyst, which was something that not a lot of other uh, scholars connected with the institute had. So, uh, for a whole number of reasons, uh, Frum was approached uh, to have his his salary cut, and not surprisingly, he was infuriated by this. So it it uh, that uh, that that ultimately was the final straw in shattering that relationship. Uh, so Frome left with a, a sizable severance package, and he was done with them. And mm-hmm. they, to a large extent, were done with him. And I think if Frome is uh, often forgotten uh, by by people who think about the Frankfurt School, uh, some of it may have to do with the fact that he left as early as he did, but then also. Uh, he just wasn't he wasn't talked about a lot or remembered much by members of the institute uh, as they were telling their story uh, at the moment that they became famous in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, well, I can see why they might have forgotten him. He was something of a self promoter, but the thing that uh, really fascinated me about him is he he gets to the United States, uh, or, or it might have happened even earlier, but. Um, there's some story to be told about his interaction with the publishing world because uh, he learned that if he wrote what are basically self-help books, he could make a fortune. That's right. Because he was the Dr. Phil of his day. Yeah, he was. Uh, the Art know. of Loving is, is yeah, uh, the most famous of all those. I can only imagine that, the, that these guys, you know, these sort of hard-bitten Marxists of you yeah. know, the, 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 the German haute bourgeoisie read this yeah. stuff and were just uh, – this just wasn't uh, – this wasn't on. I mean, yeah. and they, they probably, and then he moved to California. Yeah. It was the whole thing. I mean, they probably yeah. thought he'd just gone nuts. Um, and they, I think they, begin, I don't know, you tell me, did they begin to look down their nose at him or? Uh, I, uh, I, I don't know that they ever looked down their nose at any of their former colleagues. They always looked at them with a certain amount of wariness and they always feared cabals forming of, of, of various, former colleagues that were disgruntled and they were very aware of the fact that you know their american friends uh you know if 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 word spreads within enough intellectual networks in the united states about us that's that's negative 
that's that's not something that we necessarily want to see. So uh, they were they actually spent a lot of time, at least during the 40s. I mean, once Frome became more of the self-help guru, more in the 50s and 60s, uh, I, I don't think that they were really worried about him or thinking about him at that point. But in the 40s, you know, his his big book, Escape from Freedom, that that actually is pretty consistent with what the Frankfurt School was working on. It, I mean, it it certainly is a it's mm-hmm. a lot more accessible, and it's in some ways theoretically a little less rigorous than what the institute was doing. But I think for a lot of Americans, that was an enormously important book in helping to articulate uh, some of what the institute had been working on. So how the themes of conformity, uh, totalitarianism, and, and even to some degree, mass culture all converge. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so I think, um, you know, the, the reputation that, that Frome developed, that, that some of that may have really more taken shape in the, in the 50s. I, I remember talking to H. Stuart Hughes before I, I did a lot of oral histories in connection with this book, and, and he and Peter Gay had very similar reactions to what you're, you're describing, uh, to, to your reaction about Frome, you know, that, that he really became a lot less serious. And in some ways that, that, that has a lot to do with why the rest of the Frankfurt School was of a lot of use to the new left in the 1960s, but from really just wasn't picked up. I mean, he was he was too mainstream. He was too commercial. He, um, I mean, in some ways, had uh, he he he'd become uh, too much of a mass media commodity in, in some respects to really be taken seriously as a. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, as a countercultural figure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then, uh, the, the, so they, they make their way through the war, and a lot of them work for the uh, OSS or for the yeah. Department of State, something like this. And then uh, the war ends, um, and they have the opportunity to go back, and some right. of them do, and some of them don't. Right, which was a a very touchy issue for a lot of them. Uh, you know, I, I think that that Horkheimer became very happy with. Uh, the downsized institute that resulted from all of the problems and turbulence of exile. So some of them felt quite betrayed by him, but some of them also uh, started realizing that there were opportunities that ex- existed for them in this country. But it's interesting, you know, I mean, as, as many opportunities has opened up for, for Herbert Marcuse, for example, uh, he always I think right up until the end was was all he always entertained this thought of maybe going back to Frankfurt. And ironically, by the same token, um, I think when Horkheimer and Adorno and Pollock all got back, uh, being exiles that had returned, the the responsibilities of uh, of what they saw their role as uh, in terms of rebuilding sociology, of being a, a moral voice for the younger generation, in terms of of carrying on some of the the Weimar intellectual traditions, I, I I think that the realities of of actually carrying that out and living day to day in what was still a, a fairly conservative academic culture that hadn't been uh, as denazified as as many of them might have wished. Uh, that that turned out to be very difficult for some of them. So at the same time that uh, that that uh, that Marcuse, for example, always sort of held in the back of his mind that it might be interesting to someday go back to Frankfurt. Uh, I think that Horkheimer and Pollock 
in particular, always thought, well, maybe maybe we'll go back to the United States at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's interesting. It's it's uh, it's an interesting dynamic that that I think speaks to the fact that uh, you know, I mean, as as Martin Jay famously used the phrase as the title for his uh, his first book of essays uh, after the dialectical imagination, they were they were permanent exiles. That mm-hmm. uh, exile was not that was a condition that that never really changed because the, you you can never go back. It, mm-hmm. it, it never really. So, mm-hmm. so then uh, Marcuse stays in the United States, right? Yes, yes absolutely. He does. Yeah, he's and in the United States. And then um, uh, I, I was very interested. I think this is one of the most fascinating parts of, of your book. Maybe you could tell the story about how Marcuse became uh, someone he really didn't want to be. <laughs> yeah. he, um, you know, it's. It, I had. Well, I, I want to just explain to you how, because this was not something I expected. This is. This again speaks to the whole reason why I tend to use the term Horkheimer circle a lot more than I use Frankfurt School. When I first, I knew that I wanted to finish up the book talking about Marcuse and the American New Left because that's really the moment that Marcuse becomes internationally famous and by extension, the whole Frankfurt School becomes internationally famous. And uh, I had expected to go into the archives and to look at all the papers of SDS. I wanted to use SDS as sort of the the main, because it was the largest of all the student organizations. So then I also went through hundreds and hundreds of, of these underground newspapers that were published also during the late 1960s and 70s. And my expectation was that Marcuse was complicated enough that you would find quite a bit of writing and discussion and analysis, people trying to wrestle with, with what he was talking about, what, what it was that he was offering to the new left. And I thought that it, it actually might provide an interesting vantage point, again, following this line of looking at receptions uh, of, of critical theory and of the Frankfurt School uh, in, in, in exile and in the United States, uh, that maybe it would help to, to help identify some of the fault lines that uh, were sort of built into the new left from its inception. And to my great surprise, there really wasn't a whole lot of discussion about Marcuse at all. And it was this agonizing experience where I'd be going into the archives every day expecting to be finding all kinds of wonderful pieces of information, and I just kept coming up with with nothing. And but I started realizing very rapidly that that in and of itself is a really interesting story. Mm-hmm. And so then I started. What what did become clear is that. Uh, there were tiny pockets of people. I followed all this up with oral histories, by the way, because I, I just I, I I found the written record to be so unbelievably surprising that that it, it then became obvious that I really need to go and talk to some people who were who were sort of uh, at the center of all of this uh, to to find out what what they think about all of, what I'm finding. Uh, so at, at any rate, what what did eventually become clear is that it was really 1968 that put Marcuse on the map. So he was, at the moment that the student uprisings took place in Paris and in Rome uh, and, and, and really all over the world, you, you think of 68 as it really was this incredibly dramatic year. There were these posters that appeared uh, in Rome and, and in Paris uh, that proclaimed, uh, well, that, 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 that basically 
um, celebrated the names Marx, Mao, and Marcuse. And so you, know, you have to imagine these reporters who are, who are observing these protests. And so Marx and Mao are familiar to everybody. But then Marcuse, who the heck is that? And much to their surprise, it turns out to be uh, a philosophy professor uh, at the University of California, San Diego, mm. uh, who's, uh, who's about 70 years old and seems to be the most unlikely figure imaginable to be at the center of this whirlwind. Um, and so what, uh, the other thing that I'd always been kind of puzzled about is, about Marcuse in the era of the New Left is that, you know, when you look at his speeches from the time period and you look at his theoretical writings and monographs from the time period, his own position vacillates a lot from being very encouraging and excited and enthusiastic about what's happening with the new left to uh, literally, I mean, it could be months later where he really is hammering the new left for a lot of what's going on within its ranks. Mm -hmm. And I'd always been, and, and then also, you know, how do third world liberation movements fit into the picture? Uh, how does civil rights fit into the picture? How do uh, some of these various, um, uh, um, socioeconomic relief programs that also grew out of SDS, how do those fit into the picture? It's, it's a very confusing path that he walks. And, and gradually what I came to, to discover is that I really think that, that in some respects, um, I think that Marcuse became a media celebrity in 1968. I think that he, he was aware of that. And if you look at, at his statements and comments from that time period, it is something that he reflects on and talks about. And I think that he was very aware of the fact that by becoming a commodity at that moment, that it was going to diminish and contort him and the kind of impact that he might have. At the same time, I think that he was thrilled about what he saw going on with the student movement, but also at, at various times, unbelievably concerned. So I think that rather than Marcuse being the guru or father figure or maybe even grandfather figure of the new left, that there may be a way in which the new left may have meant more to Marcuse than he actually meant to the new left. And what I mean by that is, is that I think that they provided a kind of confirmation for a lot of what he had been working on theoretically up until that point. So if you look at, at uh, two of Marcuse's most famous books that he wrote in the United States, uh, one of them is, is obviously One Dimensional Man, which is unbelievably bleak, incredibly pessimistic. <laughs> it's, a, it's a kind of nightmare vision of not just American society, but the fact that American, there's no hope in America. There's no hope in, in the East with the communist societies, and there really isn't any hope in the third world. It, we, we're living, and he ends the book uh, by, by citing Walter Benjamin, saying, you know, it is for the sake of those without hope that hope is given to us. You know, what an, what an amazingly depressing way to, to end this uh, very wide-ranging analysis of, 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 um, uh, of advanced, uh, advanced industrial society. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if you juxtapose that with his Freud book, Eros and Civilization, that's a, uh, that is a much more markedly optimistic book. How did he reconcile, I mean, how did he generate these two visions of the future? I think in some ways the New Left, uh, they represented the kind of hopefulness 
that he had for non-repressive developments arising from within this highly repressive uh, technological society. Mm -hmm. And, And so his these tensions that he had with the student movement, on the one hand, worrying they're not intellectual enough, they're not serious enough, they're not, uh, they're not con- committed enough to seeing the big picture, to, to, to liberating their own consciousness. Uh, but then on the other hand, sometimes thinking, yeah, but what they understand on an instinctual level is that they, they are living in a society that is irrational, that is wasteful, that is destructive, and and they feel all of this uh, on, a, on a daily basis. It's part of what is creating their sense of, of disillusionment and, and alienation and dissatisfaction. In a society that at the same time is unbelievably affluent. So these are not exactly people that you would expect, perhaps, to feel uh, such such tensions uh, but 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 yet they do. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, so that is that is sort of the, um, the, the 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 what to me were were real revelations about Marcuse. And and I think in some sense, the more we can get past uh, the 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 media construction that arose about him, there's a way in which uh, not only does it does it sort of free up his thought for us to, to go back and, and think about and take seriously and to re-examine, uh, but, it, but it really allows you to do that with the whole first generation of the Frankfurt School, with the whole Horkheimer Circle, because they all, uh, it's, it's at that moment that the Frankfurt School goes from being a, a West German media term to becoming a media term, not a very widespread media term, obviously, but it's, it's at that point that, that this idea of a Frankfurt School really comes to America and comes to the United States and comes to the English-speaking world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to uh, just mention en passant that, uh, and you point this out in the book, I think, that what the um, initial thinkers and students on the new left were reading was, I think, uh, C. Wright Mills. Wasn't yeah. It? yeah. And it's yeah. funny because I interviewed John Summers. I don't know if you know John. but he, Yeah, uh, I do. Yeah. He's right. Isn't he writing the biography of C. He Wright Mills? Is, yeah. yeah no, I'm really I, excited. Yeah. No, I want to read that. Yeah. Because I've read C. Wright Mills and I think he's actually quite brilliant. And, and I yeah. can see why they, they read him. It's easier to understand than um, Marcuse, or at least was for me. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting how uh, in the mists of time, we we tend to forget these people because people are still really carrying the torch for Marcuse and critical theory. I mean, if you read the introduction to any critical theory book, and now there are yeah. critical theory departments in cultural studies and so on and so forth, it will be, um, you know, you'll, you'll hear a lot about uh, the Frankfurt School. Um, I think it's because it's convenient. It's a tag you can throw at it. But you, you don't really hear as much about, um, uh, you know, you're sort of a Christopher Lash and, and, and especially C. Wright Mills, who I, I think yeah. is, is largely forgotten today, unfortunately. But he was, right. extra- he was extraordinarily important at the time. Um, and, and I think that your book does a good job of, of, of pointing that out. And I hope that we... Uh, can continue uh, once John's book comes out. This this corrective. So let me ask you this: What what is the um? This is a big question. Mm-hmm. What is the legacy of the Frankfurt School today? Mm-hmm. I think uh, well, one of the first and in my mind, uh, I mean, it, all of these are, are legacies that that they contributed to. I, I, they didn't invent them. Uh, but one of their legacies and one of the reasons for their significance, I think, uh, particularly in the academy, is that they helped or articulate very well 
the problematic between empirical research and qualitative research. So theory and 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 positivism, if you will, mm-hmm. traditional theory and critical theory. Uh, to 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 quote the terms that that Horkheimer used to describe that distinction. That is, uh, you know, that's that is a debate that they had been participating in in Germany. That is a debate that uh, that they continued participating in when they when they were in exile. But it's a debate that, I mean, as as you point out, part of the reason why they show up in sociology textbooks, for example, is because they were able to to clarify an alternative to um, to to empirical empirical sociology. So critical sociology, if you want to use that term to describe an alternative uh, mode of thought just in the field of sociology. But, I mean, this could apply to other fields as well uh, beyond sociology. I mean, certainly as a historian, there is a a harder, more empirical branch of of history, social history, and, and then more humanistic uh, qualitative uh, branches of of the discipline as well, which, mm-hmm. as an intellectual historian and cultural historian, that's you know that obviously is squarely where I put myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so beyond the academic resonance, they also had some significant public intellectual resonance. So one of the one of the most significant uh, contributions that they made for Americans. Uh, was by uh, integrating ultimately the concepts of uh, of mass culture and uh, and totalitarianism uh, together into a, a kind of cultural Marxist critique of of advanced industrial civilization and society. And those aesthetic criticisms have never really gone away. Uh, People had always, uh, people since the the founding of the country had always been worried about uh, about popular culture uh, and 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 with the rise of mass culture, some of these people were conservative critics, some of these people were were communists, some of these people were progressives, but what the what the Frankfurt School uh, was able to contribute was a way of looking at this phenomenon uh, in a much more nuanced and and um, socially uh sociologically rich uh manner so so mass culture was not simply uh a a product of uh of of big business interests in the entertainment world it 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 was also a symptom of of much larger historical changes uh that were taking place in the world and for that reason it was something that merited very serious attention so um so so that that's another whole angle and then i think also ultimately the role of intellectuals in society uh you know ultimately when the new left uh arose in the late 1960s marcuse made a choice to be uh, to to um, to, to not be on the sidelines, to, to, to be committed and, uh, and, to, and to pick sides, to choose sides and to, to become a, a, a partisan in that sense. Yeah. Adorno, by contrast, I mean, the two exchanged these unbelievable letters throughout the 60s in which they, they debated the, the merits and the pitfalls of the new left. And Adorno was, well, he sympathized tremendously with a lot of what 
what the new left was provoked by. Uh, at the same time, he he had his misgivings were so serious that he just felt as though he had to be a lot more careful in terms of uh, of taking sides, and and he never saw it as 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 so simply clear cut, and and he used to worry aloud in these letters to Marcuse, you know make sure that, that you're thinking as critically as you can about all of this. So to some degree, it, it, it also gets to the whole question of, of what is the role of the intellectual. I mean, to, to some degree, critical theory uh, raises the idea that the, that the intellectual must and should always be politically and socially committed, uh, that, 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 that that is what an intellectual uh, is supposed to do. But on the other hand, uh, at times, they also uh, promoted uh, an idea that that in certain circumstances, the intellectual has the capacity to see more uh, by by occupying a more detached and uh, and an isolated position mm-hmm. uh, in relation to contemporary society and political movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so they. this was one of these contested issues that they debated about, but in debating about it among themselves, uh, I mean, this is also one of these classic issues that, that American intellectuals have also wrestled with themselves. So I think that, that that's uh, another piece of this whole legacy. Yeah, I, I you know, uh, I, I'm... I'm almost at a loss for words about what to say, uh, what I think about their legacy. But one thing that is pretty clear to me is is that uh, insofar as we have public intellectuals in the United States, they're very different than the public intellectuals that were around in the – even in the 50s and 60s and 70s. I mean if you think about it, for example, I mean they had – well, you know, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and Christopher Lash and, you know, uh, it's very, you know Eric Hobsbawm. And that's just the people on the left and C. Yeah. Wright Mills and these people. We have Malcolm Gladwell yeah, I know. Who, who, you know, who, who says, you know, kind of clever things about tricks of human psychology or wisdom of crowds. Or I, I don't know what it is exactly. But it seems to me that the intellectuals that we have around today are that, – that, 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 the the intellectual rigor is still there. It's largely in the academy, but it's completely detached from any political program at all. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. I, you know, I see it around me all the time. Actually, it's funny because John Summers is is different in that way, and he's gotten some heat for it. But I mean, if you think about the people who we think of as public intellectuals, I don't know Andrew Sullivan or something. Yeah. Yeah, they're bloggers, and yeah. and they, and and you, you can't really think deeply in 500 words that you have to write four times a day. Um, you can't really have a program. I don't know exactly what that. That the, what that medium does to thought, but I can't, I can't think that it's a terribly good thing. It's it's all it's all very. I don't know. I could be completely wrong about this, no, but well, it just it, it just strikes me that, that the public that the people that you know, even Eric Fromm. I yeah. mean, Doctor Eric Fromm. Yeah. Doctor Phil is no Eric Fromm. Yeah, he no, just isn't. You know, no question. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. And and it's it's interesting because at the same time that you see this. Um, transformation or retreat, if you will, of, of public intellectuals within the academy, uh, the, the, the rigor and intensity that, that traditions like critical theory are dissected and reexamined and, and, um, 
and and continued, perpetuated. But it but that's going on within largely seminar rooms. No, it is. And that's right. No, I think that's exactly right. It never gets out of the seminar room, and in fact, that's bad for it because yes. it, it never gets purified in that way. So if you read some of this stuff now, it's you know it's impenetrable, really. And yeah. and uh, I. I you know, I, I don't know if I should wish for a world in which, I don't know, Michel Foucault or something is read by the masses, but I, I do kind of wish that Christopher Lash was still around I know, <laughs> or I know. to Ray Mills yeah. or one of these guys. I don't know who it would be today, and I'm sure yeah. one of our listeners will call me up and say, yeah, well, it's this person. You should read this mm-hmm. person. But it's not Dinesh D'Souza, and yeah, it's not no. Ann Coulter, and yeah. it's not uh, you know Al Franken. I, yeah. th- these people just simply, uh, as wonderful as they are, and I you know very much respect uh, the, the talents that they have. Mm-hmm. That, but the the level of intellectual discourse um, that, that I think once, or, or the sense of possibility really yeah. that, that existed in the 1960s and 70s, the sense of possibility and the sense of engagement that yeah. that came of these things is now largely gone. I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing. I'm, I'm a relatively conservative person myself, but yeah. I don't know. It just seems like the stakes are incredibly low now for any yeah. intellectual. There just really isn't anybody who's saying, you know, this has to change or this is all wrong or this is, you know, I mean, it's funny because, I, you know, I'm, I tend to be a little bit Republican myself, I'll admit that. Um, but, you know, from the perspective of someone on the political uh, sort of center right, mm-hmm. uh, Barack Obama's great. <laughs> he, he's wonderful. I love yeah. the guy. Yeah. So it, things have really changed, I think. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it makes me wonder sometimes, you know, they were – the Frankfurt School, while it was promoting these ideas, was savaged by, by certain people and still is its legacy for being very elitist in some ways, mm-hmm. of, of not giving – uh, the, the 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 broader population enough enough credit, but it it does make you wonder a little bit if uh, it's not that there aren't more people that would be willing to be public intellectuals. It's just that that marketplace has really shrunk down to something quite small, where um, you know the, the 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 kinds of you know you look at, at at something like like Dan Brown, which has a certain kind of I don't know. I mean, intellectual cachet. It's mm-hmm. sort of like a a, a, a a much much tamer version of some of what Umberto Eco, you know, you think of Foucault's yeah. Pendulum has produced. Um, it's it's got something in common with that, and and it that sells, you know. So it's not as though people aren't curious, but the 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 what they want to put themselves through, the amount of energy that they want to put into it may not be the same. And Adorno used to worry that that he talked about regression. You know, I mean that that you can have intellectual regression, you can have aesthetic regression, and it's not among cultural producers. It's among the receptive audience that's out there that wants to engage with these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you've given me this. This discussion has given me an idea. Maybe uh, you and. Uh... And I and John Summers should have a uh, a little roundtable. That'd be great. I think it would be great. I did a I did a I did my first conference call with with three people, sort of three person interview in which everybody was in different places last week, and it turned out really well. So it would be entirely possible. And I know John has some really interesting things to say about this, and I do find it. I do find it interesting myself. I mean, I tend to be sort of a unreconstructed empiricist and positivist, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, I, I do. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's professional jealousy. I don't know what it is, but I, I, I do, I do look at the people that uh, I guess are public intellectuals, and I think, you know, I, I just would really like to think we can do better, and that's why it's so terrific to talk to people like you and 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 John Summers again, because you guys are really engaged with this stuff. And again, I, you know, I study 16th and 17th century Russia, so I don't know how engaged I can be, but uh, the the. 
it, it is – I remember in the 1980s when I was in college, and I was really quite the socialist and loved Marxism and the whole mm-hmm. thing and how engaged I was in it. But then I look at my students today, and I don't know what they're engaged in. Yeah. I, I really don't know. I, um, and they're very intelligent people. Yeah. They're terrific students. Right. But I don't know what lights their fire. I cannot mm-hmm. figure it out. Anyway, we have taken up a huge amount of your time, Tom. I could talk about this stuff all day long. Um, why don't you uh, tell us what your next project is? This is our traditional final question on New Books yeah. in History. I um I've become um I'm I'm working on a, a project with with David Kettler who has written extensively about Karl Mannheim. We're going to be we're working on a project on Franz Neumann. Franz Neumann was uh, a political scientist connected with the Frankfurt School. Uh, he was also a, a very prominent lawyer in the Weimar Republic before he emigrated. And David actually studied with Neumann uh, as, a, as, a, as a graduate student at Columbia. So it's a, it's a project that's very near and dear to his heart, and he's been collecting uh, material on Neumann for years. Uh, and I have certainly spent a lot of time wrestling with Neumann as I've worked on this project. And of all of the figures connected with the Frankfurt School, uh, in some ways uh, they're, they're just – especially in the English-speaking world, there just hasn't been enough. He hasn't gotten his due. And I think that he uh, – you, you, you want to talk about C. Wright Mills and people like Robert Lind. When you look back at, at who they thought was one of the most exciting people involved in the Frankfurt School back in the 40s, they all say Franz Neumann. Yeah, but he wrote Behemoth, didn't he? Yeah, he did. It was a big and hit. It was a big, people it, read that un- thing like crazy. Unbelievably important book, and yet he has been – uh, unfortunately, increasingly forgotten by a lot of people. Yeah. So one of the things that we're really interested in doing is trying to uh, is trying to revive interest in him because both of us think that obviously we, th- we think that he's an enormously important figure for for the, for this era uh, and for a lot of of people that go on to become enormously important public intellectuals in this country. So mm-hmm. that that in part is is what we're going to be seeking to do. Yeah, I could talk to you all day. I read Behemoth a long time ago, and I remember reading it thinking it was just a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. And it, it is. It was, it was written in the middle of it, really. You yeah. know, I mean, he, and, and he had great perspective on it. So anyway, that's, a ter- that's absolutely a terrific project, and we'll have Thank to have you, you on when, when you finish the book. And I, like I say, I'll, I'll be in touch about talking to, to you and John about historians and public intellectuals. But anyway, let me uh, thank you. That uh, We've been talking to Tom Wheatland about his terrific book, The Frankfurt School in Exile. And, uh, Tom, thank you very much for being on the show. Marshall, thank you so much. I enjoyed it immeasurably. Okay, all right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Tom Wheatland about his new book, The Frankfurt School in Exile. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Thank you.